Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that, and I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for Podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Welcome, everyone, to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. Carlos Alcaraz has now won a title on grass. He does so at the Queens Club. We're going to get into that as well as Alexander Bublik with the biggest title of his career in Hala. You'll notice a little bit of a different look, and uh, I was kind of off the match analysis and off the content train uh, the last couple weeks in part because I have been working on a new studio, a new setting. You'll still see the old one pop up uh, from time to time, uh, fairly often even. Uh, But new camera, as you can see, looking a little bit more crisp nowadays. Uh, And then in terms of the audio, I know there's a bit of an echo right now working on that, but I'm excited regardless of all of those things to get into the two matches, the two finals this week that I want to talk about uh, because a lot of interesting stuff has gone down. Obviously, for Alcaraz, what do we got here on a grass court surface that he didn't play much on last year other than Wimbledon? That was his only event last year. Suffered a fourth-round loss to Yannick Sinner. This year, he plays Queens and he goes all the way. His first title on grass, number one in the world again, which really doesn't matter much. Him and Novak continue to kind of trade that position. Uh, You know, it's been several times now that they've gone back and forth. Who really cares? Number one seed, number two seed at Wimbledon. Same thing. Literally makes zero difference. Alcaraz now, though, 40-4 and on the year. Nine main draws, five titles. Tying Medvedev for the lead in titles. Demon Orr in the final, first time these two played was, I just want to bring this up because I think it's relevant. It's kind of, it has nothing to do with really what we saw today, but it's just a follow-up on some of the things that we have been getting into with Alcaraz, particularly after Roland Garros, is the endurance factor. The first time Alcaraz and Demon Orr played, it was in Barcelona. It was at the time, I don't know if it was usurped at some point last year, but it was at the time the longest three-set match of the 2022 ATP season. Three hours, 39 minutes, Barcelona semifinal. Now that tournament, it had been crushed with rain all week. It rained and it rained and it rained. So after that three-hour, 39-minute semifinal, where Alcaraz saved a wild match point, and I think there was a couple of match point saves in that match, ended up beating Dimonor, had to play the final later that day, and won it swiftly against Pablo Carreño Busta. So when we, again, just kind of, sorry to get off topic right away on Monday Match Analysis this week, uh, but if we, we kind of 
throw that into the pile of evidence of Alcaraz and the physical breakdown against Novak Djokovic wasn't because he's not in shape. Like we've seen him, we've seen him go long and kind of outside of the U.S. Open last year, which of course is the first thing that comes to everybody's mind because it was a major and it was his first major and it was so important. But there were other examples where Alcaraz did things that made you think, wow, he really doesn't get tired, does he? So it, all that to say, once again, the nerves, the occasion, playing Novak, the anticipation, the hype, the intensity of it all, that is what led to the physical issues that we saw in that Roland Garros semifinal. As far as the match... Today was concerned, recording on Sunday afternoon here on Pacific Time in the U.S. First set felt very even. Windy, tough for the players to really play their very best, but the quality was was quite high. And the first set, very little between the two. We can point to a couple of key points at 3-4 and 4-all. We're going to talk about a lot of those key points, and that was kind of the difference, but a very tightly contested opening set. The second set was a little bit more dominant by Alcaraz on serve. And the break from Alcaraz came from a a very out-of-nowhere and random malfunction of the Alex Demonor serve. Came at two all in the second set. Demon made two out of six first serves in the game. One of those two first serves got plastered right back at his feet for an error. So one of the first serves was wholly ineffective. And he hit two double faults in that game. Hadn't hit a double fault all match long. Finished with three, and two of them came right in that game in a cluster. So that was weird. But Alcaraz was so dominant on serve in the second set, that kind of made the difference. Talking about Alcaraz and and the grass performance as a whole, I got to watch him a lot this week, especially because he kept getting the late time slot in Queens, which was, with the time difference, a little bit easier for me to, to catch him every day. I think the big questions are, is his serve deadly enough? And how is he going to react and respond to having less time? Is he going to look rushed? Is the forehand the effectiveness of the forehand going to be compromised. And then I would put it number three, although personally never really too big a concern, how well is he moving? So let's kind of evaluate that piece to piece. And once again, as we talk about this, uh, I'm going to be pointing to some big moments in the first set, in the 3-4 game, in the 4-all game that really swung the opening set, which as I said, was very tight. But before I get to those question marks, I think one thing to consider is some of the overwhelming strengths and some of the good qualities that Alcaraz has. Those strengths could oftentimes overpower the weaknesses. So it doesn't necessarily, and maybe at the highest level, maybe in a match, let's say, against Novak Djokovic, these things might matter. But against 99.9% of the field, it may not matter that, well, Alcaraz's forehand is maybe 90 or 80% of what it is on clay or... He, he's not getting as much out of his serve compared to some of his opponents who are uh, taking advantage of the surface a little bit more by getting more free points. Those things might not matter because there are some strengths for Alcaraz 
that right away, I think I identified, even in 2021, it was pretty easy to identify as, oh, this is going to be great for grass. These are areas where Alcaraz is actually going to be extremely well suited to this surface. And you have to start with very simply the offensive personality, the attacking personality that Alcaraz brings to the table. And we see it here on a break point, the second break point of this 3-4 game with Demonor threatening. So first of all, Alcaraz is going to serve in volley here. He goes T. Uh, it's a chip return by Demon. It's a short ball. And Alcaraz is actually going to do a play that was a total disaster for him in this match. He's going to fake the drop shot, and he's going to chip it deep. He's going to slice it deep. And it doesn't work at all. Demonor does not fall for it. I think the grip change came a little bit too late for this to be effective. And Alex is going to throw up a backhand lob. And Alcaraz is going to end up with a high forehand volley. On the retreat here, this is a very difficult shot. Uh, so we kind of immediately saw this early offense, this aggressive serve and volley, and kind of a butchered finish by Alcaraz. So the point is going to get back to neutral in a way, but for how long is it going to get back to neutral? And this is the key here on this point. After the aggressive play fails, Demonor is going to have this kind of neutral forehand, which he's going to take down the line. And eh, let's avoid Alcaraz's forehand. Why not? Let's go to his backhand. And instead of Alcaraz settling into a neutral rally here, Carlitos right away is going to be like, oh, First ball back on the baseline? No, we're going to rip it right away. We're going to hit extremely big, bold, flat down the line. And it's just right back to offense. Not for one second in this rally does Demonor have a sliver of opportunity to actually settle in and to you know build the point and take charge. Because Alcaraz is right back on the offensive here. Huge backhand down the line. Massive backhand cross court. Great movement by Demonor, quite frankly, uh, to get there. Uh, but this is going to go a little bit long. The way that Alcaraz refuses defense, his creative mind, and just the way he's able to get on top of points and go offense, 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 that's really good grass court quality. All week long, when Alcaraz had an opportunity, especially on his forehand, when there was any time, when there was anything to attack, uh, the guy just doesn't hesitate. There's zero, there's zero fear. There's no questioning in the decision-making. The recognition on when the attacking opportunity is there is pretty much at 100%, meaning he always recognizes it. And that initiative is valuable on grass because it is so hard to defend and because the surface rewards offense. That right there, that's not an adjustment that Alcaraz needs to make for grass. That's in his DNA. That's how he needs to play. And what we've talked about is on the slower surfaces against the consistent players who are going to make Alcaraz play more balls, the challenge for Carlitos is going the other way. It's actually pulling back the aggression, being a little bit more patient. But on grass, he doesn't have to worry about that as much. Just be your natural self. Attack, attack, attack. That's good. That's what we want. So by no means 
is grass this going to be this wholly unnatural surface for Alcaraz where he needs to uh, patch up all of his weaknesses and overcome his strengths being diminished. It's not, it's never been how it is. No. In, in a lot of ways, grass is great for Alcaraz. And in the biggest way, it's just how offensive he's able to play. All right. Let's go on to some of the other points here. Um, we talk about the offensive mentality. How about the serve? How about the serve? Huge performance from Alcaraz on the serve in this match. He has recognized how important it is to get more out of the serve on grass, which, by the way, I think he did last year as well. We saw him introduce the bigger and and flatter kind of bomb serve on a more regular basis last year. But this year, uh, I think we're seeing it perform a little bit better. And in this match, we can say that in the big moments, the serve was enormous, especially closing out the match where it did appear, especially and particularly in the 5-4 game in the second set, Alcaraz started the game with two uh, fairly egregious errors. One of them was on another fake drop shot that he attempted. The same shot that almost got him into trouble on that break point that I showed you guys in film study. So he, he was down love 30. And he won the next four points without having to hit a single ball. But let's go back to the previous game. The 3-4 game. Or I guess the 4-3 game. Alcaraz serving at 4-3. Same thing happened. Same thing happened. Alcaraz won all four points on unreturned serves. So, what does that mean? It means that in Alcaraz's last two service holds that he needed to win the championship in Queens. He won all eight points, each of his last eight points on serve without having to hit a second shot. Eight unreturnables. Now, were there some returns in there that Demon should have absolutely returned? Yes, there were. Some of them were even second serves. But it does show you that Alcaraz has the ability to get tons out of his serve. And even for that shot to bail him out in nervous moments trying to close when some other things are going wrong, which they really were towards the end of this match in that last service game especially. What about the first break point in the first set? 3-4. Before the point where Alcaraz hit that beautiful combination backhand down the line, backhand cross court to finish. There was a break point at 30-40. If Demon converts this break point, he's serving for the first set. 137 mile per hour ace from Alcaraz out wide. 137. He's got it in him and he's only six feet tall. It's impressive stuff. Uh, for the match, the stats ended up being very healthy. Uh, for Alcaraz, it was... Eh, I don't have it written down in my notes. I tweeted it, so I'll just pull that up. 43% first serves unreturned. 33% of his overall service points were unreturned for the match. So one in three service points total unreturned. That's pretty good. So for the most part, just watching Alcaraz throughout Queens... The serve has been uh, a positive. 
positive. I also want to talk about Alcaraz's slice because we know that that can be more important on the lower bouncing grass. And it's a bad moment for the backhand slice. There's been a lot of talk about why has the, have the next-gen players struggled on grass? How come Tsitsipas, Medvedev, Zverev? How come all these guys, Rublev? Why aren't the good young players making runs at Wimbledon? Part of it has been, I think, yes, the lack of experience on grass. It takes longer to get used to the surface. COVID didn't help in that respect at all. Some of it is I take a look and I see a lot of guys who don't have sliced backhands. Now, is that a massive percentage of points where it's going to cost you? No, but it's something. And it's more significant on grass than it is on the other surfaces. This is a bad moment for the backhand slice. A really bad moment. Medvedev doesn't really hit it. Fritz doesn't really hit it. Zverev doesn't really hit it. Rublev doesn't hit it. Sinner doesn't hit it. Tsitsipas, he tries sometimes. It's not very good. Now, I know Zverev isn't in the top 10, but level-wise, he's there. He's there at this point. So that's more than half of the top 10 who either just kind of refuses to hit a backhand slice or doesn't have a very good one. Whoa. Alcaraz, he's got it. It's pretty good. Uh, he does not hit it a lot, by the way. He is not a frequent user of the backhand slice, uh, especially on clay. Um, I should mention, by the way, in fairness to the players who I just mentioned, many of them are exceptional at hitting their backhands from low contact points. And most of them, in general, just have terrific two-handed backhands, particularly Medvedev, Fritz, Zverev, and Sinner. So that's why they don't hit their backhand slice. But on grass, it's still going to trip them up sometimes, in my opinion. There's still going to be moments where, where they are caught wanting for it. Alcaraz has impressed me this week. I've been watching it a lot again, and I'm seeing a lot of really good and savvy use of the slice. Uh, this may be the, the point I'm about to show you. It's maybe not the best example, but it's the biggest example because I'm going to show you another big point that swung the first set. I showed you how Alex Dimonor was not able to convert either of his break opportunities at 3-4. There was the ace, and then there was the... The point that we watched in film study. Well, now let's go to Alcaraz at 30-40 at 4-all. And Demon's going to hit a good first serve here. And Alcaraz with a good stretch return on the two-handed backhand. He gets it back in play. He gets some depth. But it's still a weak return that Demonor is going to be able to attack with an aggressive plus-one forehand. So Demon hits it big behind Alcaraz. Good play on grass, especially against a speedy opponent. Demon's done everything right so far. Alcaraz is going to be very rushed here because there's a lot of pace on this forehand, and he really just doesn't have time to hit a two-handed backhand. So he's going to kind of hit this open stance lunging backhand slice. Tough shot here. Uh, frankly, Alcaraz does not have his feet in a good position to hit a good backhand slice. It's much easier to close your stance 
in order to hit the backhand slice, and Alcaraz is not able to do that here. So this is tricky. It's an improvisation, and it's all about how's your feel on that shot? How are your hand skills? Are you going to float it in the middle of the court? Are you going to miss it? Well, Alcaraz, he puts it in a perfect location. He chops that ball right into the Demonor backhand corner, and he gives Alex a backhand. He somehow gets it to Alex's backhand off of that awkward defensive backhand slice, which is a huge win here because Demonor on the backhand, he's got a short, short backswing on it, very good backhand, not so much when he needs to generate all the pace. And that's what uh, Alcaraz makes Demon do on this backhand. Uh, Alex tries the best he can to really rip this backhand cross court, but Alcaraz is there, and this point is back at neutral. So Alcaraz, with his backhand slice and his return, has successfully neutralized the serve plus one of Demonor. Now, let's go back to that offensive mentality. All right, here is a backhand, kind of the first ball that he's able to actually get a good hit on, a good healthy swing. And Alcaraz hits this with tons of pace, tons of depth. Demonor is going to block it down the line. Doesn't get much on it. First look at a forehand from Alcaraz. Wastes no time. Crush. Cross court. Into the corner. Brilliant pace generation. I'd reckon over 90 miles per hour on this forehand. And Demonor can't handle it. It's a forced error. Break point converted by Alcaraz. Serves for the first set. Wins the first set. And just like that, it's one set to love in favor of Alcaraz. Good use of the backhand slice. It impressed me all week long. Finally, the movement. As I said earlier, not the biggest area of scrutiny coming in for me when it comes to Alcaraz, but uh, it looks great. He's light on his feet. On grass, you got to take more small steps. You can't plant your feet quite as hard into the court or you will slip. Alcaraz has made that adjustment very nicely. He's got great foot speed. And he's able to soften those steps quite well. And the movement looks great to me. You know, he's floating around the court. So it's all good, all positive in the movement area. I do want to talk about Demonor. I want to give him some credit here. Um, he's, he, he's awesome on grass. He's great. And I thought this was a good performance. The reason why I like him so much on grass, first thing is the ground stroke speed of Alex, which is a weakness. It's smoothed over on this surface because even if the ball doesn't leave the strings with as much speed as some other players are able to accomplish, the fact that he hits such a flat ball, such low net clearance, he gets that skid effect through the court. So even though he's not, even though the ball is not coming off of his racket with as much speed, the ball is losing so little speed when it hits the court that the overall picture, the ball kind of penetrates and it still comes quick because Demon gets that skid through the court. Uh, plus, he takes the ball early. He plays early. Offensive positioning suffocating court positioning combined with the threat of net rushing. I always like it when, when Demonor 
is coming forward behind his ground strokes. He does those two things really, really well. And he's able to create much more easy offense on, on grass than he is on, on clay and hardcore. And I think that's a huge deal for him because, you know, sometimes, especially if you're able to drive him back with heavier balls, he just doesn't have the power to really hurt you. On grass, never really, never really looks like that. Now, we could have been a little bit more clinical on some mid-court approach shots. I can't say that there were tons of mistakes or, or many mistakes on mid-court balls, but there were a couple in key spots that cost him, that led to breaks of serve in particular. So that's one area that you could, you could nitpick in this performance. Uh, also, his spot serving is rewarded, and that's been something that I've noticed in some of the, the runs that Demonor, the best runs of Demonor, uh, Demonor's career. Usually, he's overperformed in the serve category. If you look at his serving stats on a lot of you know the best runs he's had, whether it be the Atlanta title he won, or Antalya, or uh, Acapulco, I don't really recall, uh, and that's a slower surface, but usually the Demonor first serve is getting hot and he's hitting spots. And on grass, he's getting more out of his spot serving. It's the same reason why, and he does, he hits his spots well. It's the same reason why his lower speed ground strokes are not as big of a liability on grass. Same thing with his serve. Low contact points for his opponents, that's also a big deal. Even if it's not when the skid effect isn't creating offense for Demon, it's still creating low contact points. And that was very, very, very noticeable in this match because Alcaraz just didn't have as many opportunities to hit out on his aggressive forehand. The ball wasn't sitting up as much for Alcaraz's forehand as it was all week long. I felt in a lot of Alcaraz's matches, the forehand was really the overwhelming weapon on the court. In this match, maybe not so much. Whenever Carlitos had a chance, yeah, uh, when he had a chance, it was there. But I thought he had fewer chances to hit aggressive forehands. And that's a huge credit to Demonor and the ball that he's able to produce on this surface. And lastly, Demonor's movement is just unbelievable, exceptional on grass. Uh, I think the clay courts kind of take away from demon speed a little bit. It, it's good on the hard courts, but on grass, he excels with his quickness. And one thing that was a, was a mess for Alcaraz, one thing where Alcaraz was entirely unsuccessful was on the drop shots, whether it be the, the drop shots that he actually went through with and he hit the drop shot or on the occasions that I've already mentioned where he actually faked the drop shot with the continental grip and he tried to hit through with the deep slice. Neither of those plays were successful. And there were even some drop volleys that Alcaraz missed into the net, clearly pressing because of Demonor's speed. So it was a pretty close match. But ultimately, Alcaraz wins. His first top 20 win on grass. Does he have the resume at this point on grass to indicate that, you know, it's proven? It's it's there in terms of the results. We can just look at the results and we know that Alcaraz 
is a top contender at Wimbledon? No. No. Still not there. Still doesn't have that body of work. However, if you have been waiting all throughout these last two years, if you have been waiting for Alcaraz's body of work to catch up to, I guess, how good he actually is, then you've been behind the eight ball for these last two years. So in reality, um, he should be high on your list of Wimbledon contenders. And uh, I'll make tears next week. I'll make tears next week. First top 21 on grass for Alcaraz, though, uh, here against Demonor, I think is a good thing to note. All right, let's go to Hala. Alexander Bublik, what a strange year for him. 0-8 start. If you told him in February, hey, Sasha, a couple months from now, June, actually, by late June, you're going to hit your career high and you will have won the biggest title of your career. He would have laughed in your face, probably. I'm guessing he would have laughed in your face. That's where we're at. Bublik, 26 in the world, and he's got an ATP 500 title. As I mentioned, hasn't been the best season for him, especially given the start. Uh, coming into this week, 12 and 21. 12 wins, 21 losses. So let's start here. What changed for Bublik? Well, in Bublik's 33 matches coming in, 33 matches on the year, never once was his ace rate above 20%. Ace rate is very simple stat. It's aces divided by service points. Mm, simple enough. 33 matches, never did better than 20%. In Hala, in all four of his completed matches, all four, he was above that number. All four, he was above 20%. Against Sinner, who retired, he was not on pace to be above 20. He probably wouldn't have been above 20, even if Sinner had not retired. But Yannick is one of the hardest guys on tour to ace. He's unbelievably tough to ace. Everybody else... Couldn't really touch Bublik's serve. 29% against Chorich. 23% against Struff. 23% against Zverev. 27% ace percentage against Rublev. How good is that number? Kyrgios led the tour last year among top 50 players at 19.6%. How did Bublik do last year? 16.8%. So match after match after match, Bublik, which is somewhat to be expected on grass, but maybe not every match by a significant margin, he simply outperformed his regular service level by miles. And his ace rates were through the roof, but that's just aces. Ready for the unreturned first serves percentage against Rublev? 81 81%. Whoa. So every year, there are some runs like this on grass. In fact, last year, what, what really sticks out to me, just going off of memory, was Berrettini in Queens. I remember Monday match analysis after Berrettini won Queens, and I was like, 
I was going match by match. I'm like, look, nobody, nobody could return his serve. Nobody got his serve back. So he won the title. Sometimes on grass, that can happen. That 100% happened here. Now, in this final against Rublev, I think Bublik also deserves a lot of credit for the skill that he displayed in flashes, in spurts, on return, which is all you need. Now, it looks a little different for Bublik than it looks against, you know, than it looks for, for some other players. But, you know, for, for John Isner, for example, generally it was just like all he needed was a couple of second serves, runs around, aggressive forehand returns, maybe get a couple of those in a return game, a couple of mistakes, and there's your break of serve, and there's the set. That's kind of the, the John Isner formula. For Bublik, it's not so much aggressive second serve returns, but you're just going to find these flashes of just sometimes, you know, it comes in a lot of different forms. But in the first set, um, at Love 1, when the break came, Bublik showed off some unbelievable defending, uh, literally moving laterally, sideline to sideline, and then coming in with this inside-out backhand drop shot, which he followed in for a volley put away. Just a spectacular point. And then on the second point of that game, Rublev steps around for an aggressive forehand inside-in, and Bublik on the run way behind the baseline, counterattacks cross-court with a absolute sizzler forehand winner into the open court cross court and then the world feed cut out so i don't know what happened for the rest of the game but you know the way bublik opened up to love 30 rublev did very little wrong in that instance so that's notable and then you look at the the third set the break of serve that bublik was able to get it's another example you look at those points rublev was not giving away donations in this game. There was only really one of them, which I'll mention, but you know, there was a big pace injection on a backhand cross court by Bublik. Uh, Sasha hit a forehand slice, kind of a carving, ooh, kind of a carving side spin forehand slice that hit off the baseline. A little bit lucky there. Sasha found this roped forehand down the line from a difficult position that he hit for a, a winner. Now, the game went to deuce. Rublev ended up having add-in game point to hold. This was, again, the start of the third set. And he netted a really easy midcourt forehand. Bublik did get the anticipation right, which I think Rublev saw out of the corner of his eye. But ultimately, it was a really easy forehand that Andre uh, should not have missed. Deuce, deep return by Bublik, followed up by a forehand winner. And then on the break point, another uh, another great two-hander by Bublik cross-court for a winner from well behind the baseline. He absolutely smoked it off of a, a backhand trade that Rublev was a little bit, little bit tight on. It was just too central, just wasn't good enough. And you have to know against Bublik if you're going to give him a look. He's going to go for broke, and you're kind of, at that point, it's out of your hands. So it wasn't a great backhand 
uh, by Rublev. But that was not a horrendous game. It, it really wasn't. I mean, Bublik made a lot happen there. Um, and then another interesting part of the match was uh, Bublik serving for it where he opens it with two double faults to go down love 30. He double faults again to hit 30 all. Then he comes up with a service winner at break point. At deuce, uh, Rublev misses a forehand off of a Bublik uh, forehand slice. I found this miss to be insane. I, I Inexcusable miss by, by Rublev, who continues to look pretty uncomfortable dealing with slice. And then, match point, Bublik hits his 21st ace of the match. And there you have it. So, three double faults for Bublik, and he still holds to win the title. What does this mean for uh, Bublik's future? I mean, I'm painting this picture for you. I'm talking about how much Bublik can do, first of all, on serve, which I think everybody knows about. But then also the fact that he can move and that he has an exceptional two-handed backhand. And his forehand can come up with brilliance at any given moment. And his touch is great. And his volleys were really awesome in this match. He's got skill, movement, and one of the bigger first serves in, in the game. That's supposed to be automatic top 20. That's supposed to be, you are a mainstay in the top 20. You do not go anywhere with, with those three things alone. That combination of serve, movement, and skill should be all you need. And in that respect, I want to look at a run like this from Bublik and just be like, okay, you know, maybe this is the turning point where some of the weaknesses just get smoothed over a little bit. You know, the second serve under pressure and uh, the focus, the professionalism, the effort levels, the shot selection. Maybe this is the moment. On the other hand, the, the flip side of that is he can't hit this many aces. It's not sustainable. So sometimes when I look at a title run like this, I'm going to look at something like that and I'm going to ask myself, is this repeatable? Are we going to see this again? Now, Bublik has a great serve. So the answer is not never. It's not that he can't do it again, but can he do that regularly? If you just look at the ace rates here, and if you, especially if you kind of say, okay, you know, the grass court season, it's like three weeks and then Wimbledon, it's a very slim stretch. Uh, is he going to be able to, to serve this well? And is that going to be able to make him a factor throughout the calendar? And that's where the argument is no. Where it's like you're not going to hit above 20% ace rate every single match. In some cases, close to 30% ace rate. Not going to happen. All right? On the Rublev side of things, not great. Not great in this final. Now, I, I felt he was struggling with lack of rhythm. I I find it pretty alarming just how helpless he was on Bublik's first serve. I don't expect anybody to, you know, have an easy time with that bomb of a serve. But 81% unreturned is a pretty rough number. And I feel, you know, it took Rublev a little bit too long to start guessing. And there were there were also some scenarios where I thought, especially on the backhand side, where it's like, really, you can't block this? 
You're still going to be, you know, you're barely making returns and you're still going to try to hit over it, really? Like, maybe just try to make it in play, especially because Bubla can be unpredictable and you might get some mistakes from him. But ultimately, the lack of rhythm is tough. And I don't think Rublev likes it. When I say lack of rhythm, I mean this. I mean, Bublik would rather miss than hit the same ball twice in a row. He just gives you none of that flow, which I think Andre thrives off of. Like, he wants to grind with you. He wants to get in that nice, you know, baseline, lateral tennis mojo. I mean, you even look at the way Bublik plays his second serve return points. He'd rather double fault than give you a soft serve. So there's really just no opportunity to get comfortable. And I thought when Rublev had his opportunities, the performance really suffered. And, you know, I could, my, my excuse for him is that the, there really was a lack of rhythm. But at the same time, you got to be able to, to maybe overcome that. Uh, and this isn't new for, for Rublev. I looked at his head-to-heads against big servers. Is this a systematic problem with Rublev where A, the lack of rhythm bothers him and B, perhaps he's not handling the biggest serves as well as he could? Well, first of all, in fairness, he was 3-0 before this match against Alexander Bublik. He was 3-0 against Bublik. After that, not so favorable. 1-3 versus John Isner. 1-2 versus Kyrgios. 2-3 versus Berrettini. 2-2 versus Hercotch. 3-4 versus Struff. Like, biggest servers in the world, last couple years especially... Guys who take away your rhythm. Guys who Rublev has played multiple times. I think that's a pretty good collection of guys. Isner, Kyrgios, Berrettini, Hercoc, Struff. Andre doesn't have a winning record against any of them. Not one of them. Now here's some guys he does have a winning record against. 3-1 and one versus FAA. That's a big serve. 1-0 against Cressy. You know, it's one match. I was purposely choosing guys who he's played multiple times. In fact, everybody I said he's played more than twice, but he did beat, he did win his only match against Cressy. So, all right. But overall, you look at the big picture, Rublev has had an issue with the big servers. Here's the one positive for Andre. Uh, he does avoid the Hala curse. Non-Federer Hala champions since 2011. Literally, these are the only guys who are not named Roger Federer who have won Hala since 2011. Cole Schreiber in 11. Tommy Haas in 2012. Uh, Florian Meyer in 20. I believe it's Florian, not Leo. Which Meyer was it? Okay, uh, sorry. I don't know which one, but one of them won in 2016. Chorich in 2018, Umber in 21, Hercotch last year. Not a single one of those, not a single one of those guys got out of the first round at Wimbledon. Absolutely bonkers. 
and Rublev, who um, has uh, avoided the Hala curse before, I believe 2021, he lost to Umber in the Hala final. Uh, that is the only silver lining for one Andre Rublev, who's going to be able to play Wimbledon this year uh, after not being able to play it last year. That's all I got for Monday Match Analysis. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I will see you next time. Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you mean cellar. the mini fridge? Yeah, it's a mini fridge. It's a mini yeah. fridge. New episodes of Fly on the Wall and drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wall and wherever you get your podcasts.